The book of Nehemiah, chapter 2, is where our text is today. I, um, I've been doing some uh, stuff in the book of Nehemiah the last six months, and I learned how to meditate not long ago. And I have really um, been enriched as I have discovered the secret of the other side of prayer. And I have been doing my um, meditation from the book of Nehemiah. Sharing a lot of these things um, with the guys at noon on Friday. And in light of all that um, is happening this weekend with our college students, I wanted to share a, a message out of Nehemiah chapter 2, beginning in verse 17. I need to tell you that um, some history about the book um, the Babylonians, Nebuchadnezzar, came and sieged the city of Jerusalem. And he took away these people out into Babylonian captivity, what is now modern Iraq. And they lived in these refugee camps for over a hundred years. And in the providence of God, he arranged in time that there was this coalition between uh, the Medes and the Persians, and they overthrew the Babylonians. And there was a young man who became a cupbearer in the uh, court of the king of Persia. His name was Nehemiah. And one day he came to the king, and he had this wonderful dream. And the dream was that he be able to go back to Jerusalem, to the home of his fathers, to the home of his ancestors, and rebuild the walls of the city. And he's allowed to do that in God's wonderful love and providence, and that's what this is about. Nehemiah in Jerusalem um, in an attempt to rebuild the walls of his city. Verse 17, Then I said to them, You see the bad situation we are in? that Jerusalem is desolate and its gates burned by fire? Come, let us rebuild the wall of Jerusalem that we may no longer be a reproach. And I told them how the hand of my God had been favorable to me and also about the king's words which he had spoken to me. Then they said, let us arise and build. So they put their hands to the, to the good work. But when Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite official and Geshem the Arab heard it, they mocked us and despised us and said, What is this thing you are doing? Are you rebelling against the king? So I answered them and said to them, the God of heaven will give us success. If you've got a pencil, I'd like for you to circle that familiar word, success. The God of heaven will give us success. Therefore, we, his servants, will arise and build. But you have no portion. The word means claim or stake. S-T-A-K-E. No claim or, or stake, right or history memorial in Jerusalem. 
two guys were talking one day, and one of the guys was just really down. And he was pretty discouraged about his life, and he said, you know, he said, I'm just a failure. He said, I don't know what to do about it, but I'm just a failure. And his buddy, uh, who was not too sympathetic evidently, he said, well, I got, a, I got a perfect cure for failure. He said, well, what is it? He said, success. <laughs> I guess that all of us would like a large dose of that cure. For I suppose there is in everybody a kind of an inward craving for success. We, we might call it ambition or desire for preeminence. And we all have this inward craving to be successful. And so we say to ourselves or we say to others, I would just like to be a successful, and we fill in the blanks. I've never heard anybody say, you know, I'd like to be a failure. The question is, is it okay to crave or desire success? Is that okay? Is it okay to have a personal ambition for preeminence? There are some who would suggest that if a person is ambitious, you know, there's something worldly about that, and you shouldn't ever do that. This is kind of a sin. And so a bishop was interviewing and questioning some candidates for ordination, and he asked them this question. He said, is there any of you who has a craving for preeminence, an ambition to be successful? And they all answered with a kind of a humble accent, no, they, we don't have a craving for that. And he said, well, you're a sorry lot, all of you. And when they kind of caught their breath and got, got back together, got themselves together, he, he went on to explain, he said, nobody, as much as Jesus, has fired the ambition for greatness in, in, in a human being's life. Nobody, as much as Jesus, has fired the desire to be successful. And then he said, just be sure that it's real success that you seek. I'm not sure if we know what that is. I, uh, I know more people who feel like a failure than I know who feel successful. I'm not sure that we would know success if we met it on the street today. And I think part of the reason why is because we have, we have come to understand such a shallow meaning of success. And so before I talk about success, I want to talk just, I want to say three brief things about failure. Some people feel like a failure because they, they just kind of, they're aimless. They just kind of meander through life without a sense of purpose or direction or meaning. A lady just poured out her soul to Ken Chafin and she was so miserable and unhappy. She talked about this unhappy life she lived. She talked about how miserable it was and how disappointed. And she kept using the phrase, uh, my life is just getting nowhere. And when she kind of paused in the bombardment of her despair, Ken Chafin asked her, if you feel like your life is getting nowhere, where would you like for your life to be going? And she thought a minute, and she had no answer. The reason why Nehemiah was so strong and so successful was because he aimed his life at a divine intention and he could define his life in two or three sentences, his life goal, and it was framed around a time structure. And I think we feel like a failure because most of the time we measure success, our lives, on the basis of the things we don't have. 
And that's where we focus on the things we don't have. If we are if we're poor, we think money is the answer. If we are disenfranchised, we think acceptance is the answer. If we're stuck in one place, we think moving is the answer. And the focus of our life is on what we don't have. And closely related to that is, is that we buy into all of these images that Madison Avenue has portrayed about what's successful. You know, what kind of car will make you powerful? You know. I've even heard of power ties. You know, I want a power tie. As, even, as, as if you could get a tie and that'll make you powerful, you know. What kind of genes do I need to buy my daughter so she'll be better than the rest of her classmates? You know, these images that we buy into. I'm suppose, I suppose all of you have heard of Sam Walden. Richest man in the world, or was till he gave billions away to his kids. I'd love to have a father give about 6.2 billion to each of the children. Sam Walden, you know, founder and, and owner of Walmart, and I'm sure you've read that he drives an old beat-up truck, pickup truck. And, and, and every time I hear somebody talk about that, they always kind of, he drives an old beat-up pickup truck, as if to say, well, you know, rich and powerful people don't drive old beat-up pickup trucks. You say, well, I don't know whether I think like that or not. Well, let me, let me, let me ask you this. If, if you had never seen me and you'd never seen Sam Walden, and I pull up down at the stoplight on Main Street in a luxury car, and he pulls up beside me in an old beat-up pickup truck. Who in your mind, as you've never seen either one of us, who is the most powerful and, su and successful in your mind just looking at that? You see what I'm saying? Well, how do you spell success? And what does it look like? That's what I want to talk about this morning. And you're going to wonder what is the answer and how am I going to relate this to the Scripture. I'm going to show you. You are successful if you cherish and build relationships. Now I want you to go back sometime and look at this verse of Scripture and underline the number of times he uses the word us and, and, and we. And even though Nehemiah is the main character of this story and he is the one who is going back to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem, he understands that his success is largely dependent upon others. He understands that whatever success he has in life, it will not be primarily because of his abilities and his talent. It will be because of the, of the influence and the talent and the abilities of the people who surround him. Now who is the richer person in the world? Is there a richer man than a man who has a wife who cherishes him and children who honor and respect him and who has friends who, who depend on him? Who is the richest person in the world? Who is the richer? On the, on the downside, here is, a, here is a person who in the pursuit of his, his worldly goals and the images and the things of life, he has no intimacy in his marriage, he has no children who respect him, and he has no friends who honor him. Who is the richer of the two? You see, the richest people in the world are the people who have developed and cherished relationships. For no one is an island we all enter this stream of connectedness that flows from a distant past. And the moment you're born, you're, you're involved in this interaction between the, with the dead and the living and the yet unborn. It's what Edmund Burke calls this ongoingness so that the success of life is, 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 is determined by the relationships you have. 
And the failure of life is determined by the fact that we become alienated from others. A number of years ago, by a man by the name of Samuel Graflin told about an old man who, grew, who, who lived in a Midwestern town. He wasn't, he wasn't rich. He didn't have a lot of things. didn't even have an education except what he learned by hard knocks. And Samuel Graflin tells about the day he died. Now listen to this story. He said, yes, said Mr. Graflin, he was easily the town's first citizen. Everybody called him Joe. When he prayed at the church or in Sunday school, something happened in people's hearts. In his small house on a back street, people turned to him for that intangible something that puts hope in life. I shall never forget the morning Joe died of a fever. The stores did a little business. There was a hush in the streets. The richest man in town had just ordered a new carriage and he went down himself to offer it to Joe's widow. Give it to her. The florist denuded the greenhouse of his choicest flowers and banked the little parlor with a wealth of beauty. The county undertaker drove 15 miles over the hills to offer his services free, for he said, I was a drunkard on these roads until one day Joe got hold of me and told me of the saving grace of Christ. And so they came. The old toll gatekeeper said, I've been keeping this toll gate for 35 years, but never before have I seen 1,200 carriages come from all over the country to pay tribute to one man. Rich? Successful? You bet. As a matter of fact, the development of relationships is in itself a success. So that one who has friends and he has an intimacy and he has relationships, these are the successful people. Secondly, you're successful if you like your work. When, when your work is neither drudgery or a, nor, nor an addiction, but it's really a means of self-expression and an opportunity to make a contribution to your society. I need to say that again. When your work is neither an addiction nor a drudgery, but it is a means of self-expression or an opportunity for you to make a contribution to your society. I love this, the image that's in this text. For Nehemiah kind of puts his tongue in his cheek and he's talking to these people who, who are resisting his effort to rebuild the walls and he's saying in essence, you guys are missing out. Tongue in cheek. We're going to build a wall, we're going to build this city back and you're not going to be, you're not going to have a stake in that. You're not going to have a claim in that. We're doing something that one day we can back up and say, we have a stake in that city. One day I walked out of this church building and I, I hadn't been here too long. I saw an old guy standing out here on the corner. Now, I'm not going to tell you that he was, you know, he was, you know, scuzzy looking, but he, he wasn't, he, he wasn't, you know, like, like a well-dressed guy. He was standing out here on the corner. I started getting my car. He said, hey, come, come here a minute. So I went over there where he was. And he said, are you the preacher? I said, yes, sir. I thought he was going to ask me for a handout. He said, I built this building. He pointed this building over here. I said, you did? He said, yeah, I built this building. He told me when. He said, I laid every brick in that building right there. He pointed at it. Boy, he's just so proud. 
And he turned around, he pointed some of the buildings around here in town. He said, I built that building. He said, I built that building. And he was just popping his buttons. He was so proud. You know what he was saying? He was saying, fellow, you, you better do a good job in there because I got a stake in what you're doing. I built a building where you operate. And when you come together on Sunday morning, you better do a good job because I got a stake, I got some claim in what happens in that building on Sunday morning because I built it, see. And you better do a good job while you're trying to reach people and grow them because I got a claim, I got a stake in what you do. Isn't it wonderful to be able to one day just kind of back off and look at something that you've done and say, all that goes on there, I've got a claim in that. I've got a stake in that. I've made a contribution to my world. That's when you're successful. And you're successful, third, when you're engaged in something that will not be diminished by time. Now, I hope you noticed here Nehemiah's statement when he was talking to those who were accusing him and trying to talk him out of doing what he was doing. He said to them, I'll tell you what's going to happen, guys. This is a Tidwell paraphrase. He said, you're going to miss a part of history because we're rebuilding this city and we're rebuilding these walls and we're involved in something that will last beyond us. There's a haunting prayer in the 90th Psalm. And the psalmist said, Establish or confirm the work of our hands. The work of our hands, yes, confirm. And like any good Jew, in order to emphasize his prayer, he says it again, yes, it confirm the work of our hands. It's interesting to me that the prayer of that man who was begging God to confirm and establish His work comes at the end of that marvelous psalm that says, three score, our days are three score and, year, and ten. And if by reason of strength eighty years, yet soon we're cut off and we fly away. You know what the psalmist was doing? He was doing this, he was saying this. I'm not going to live long. I want to be involved in something that will outlive me. I'm going to die soon. I want to be, in, I want to be engaged in something that will keep on living when I do. I'm, I'm not going to be here long, even if I live to be 80. I'm not going to live this life long. I want to be sure that there's something that will outlast me. I preached a funeral here not long ago. An old guy, he lived in a little brown, little frame house up here in the north part of town, drove an old beat-up car, cut his own hair. When I stood to preach his funeral, there were 125 Eagle Scouts. Not all of them were present, but most of them. 125 Eagle Scouts sitting right there in that section, all young men, serious and sad, all dressed up. And all over this congregation, there, have been young, there were young men who had come out of town, come from out of all the places in this town. I even had calls from people as far away as Houston saying I'd love to be there, but I can't be. And I thought as I preached the funeral, I looked out over those 125 Eagle Scouts, 
that wherever these men are in this world, they carry a little bit of this guy, and, is, and even though he's dead and gone, he's not dead and gone. And even though he's, he, 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 we're going to put him out and take him out and bury him in a, in a, in a, in a grave, he, he's been engaged in something that lasts far beyond that. And so when I preached Mr. Dobbins' funeral, I thought, isn't it wonderful to be able to say, I am successful because I've been involved in something that goes far beyond me. Now you're successful if you dream big dreams. Nehemiah came to, to the king and he said, I've got a big dream. I've got a dream. I want to go to the city of Jerusalem that's no longer a city. It'd be like going to Baghdad. He said, I want to go to the city that is no longer the city. I want to go to a place that's nothing but rubble. I've got a dream. I want to, I want to build a city back. I want to build walls back there. I want to, I, I, my dream is that one day there'll be a city again and there'll be a temple again. There'll be walls and there'll be people. I, I, I have this dream. Where are the dreamers? In 1965, a play opened on Broadway by the name of the Man of La Mancha. Nobody got excited because it was just another staging of the old Don Quixote story. And so nobody was that excited. And when the curtain went up on that play, you know, it was, it was not like, you know, the usual, this is going to be something great. But by the time the final curtain came down, I'm told that there was an applause, a standing ovation that is almost unparalleled in, modern theatrical, in the modern theatrical world. Now, Don Quixote was a man with a touch of madness. And, and he, he, he set out on a quest of what is described as an impossible dream, to right the unrightable wrong, to reach the unreachable stars. He was haunted by a vision of what ought to be and, and he saw in not just things, but in people what ought to be. So when he looked at Aldonza, the part-time prostitute and the part-time servant girl at the end, he saw a possible glory, so he called her by a new name, Dulcinea. New names follow um, new people, like Peter follows Simon and Paul follows Saul. And the people criticized him and they, and they ridiculed him, but still Quixote would say, and the world will be better for this, that one man, though scorned and covered with scars, still strove to his last, last ounce of courage to reach the unreachable stars. And there were tears in the eyes of those people at the end of that play. Now why, do you suppose, was it because the music was so great? No, not really. Was it because of the staging, adequate but not spectacular? Was it because of the actors, they were great and they made it come alive? That's not the reason. The critics said, now listen to me, the critics said, I believe that the response came because man of La Mancha, the words, music, 
and story stirred something in the hearts of those people, even that Broadway audience which they had thought was dead and gone. It was the appeal of a great dream, an ideal, even if it is called impossible. Where are the dreamers? Let me tell you something. The person who has a great dream has the dream. You say, what do you mean by that? Well, you remember over in the book of Hebrews it says that these great men of, of the faith never really were able to see the fulfillment of their dreams and yet they embraced them from afar. You know what he's saying by that? He's saying that if you dream a big enough dream, you have the dream just with the dream. You remember when David came to God and he said, I want to, rebuild, I want to build a temple. And God said, no, I'm not going to let you build a temple. You're a, you're a warrior, not a contractor. But you did well in your heart. Look, look, he said, but you did well in your heart for you did it in your heart. You know what? God does not judge us by the accomplishments of our hands. He judges us by the ambitions of our heart. You have the dream, and you have the dream. And He's the only master I know who rewards His servants with, for their good intentions. Where are the dreamers? Here's a guy who, who looks forward every year. He's going to go to the slopes in Colorado and ski, and he's not going to fall a time. So he gets to Colorado, and he, he gets on the baby slopes, on the beginner slopes, and man, he gets with it. He, he, slides, he, he skis down those baby, that baby slope, that beginner slope, never falls. And he comes home, man, he's bragging. He, man, I went to there, I went to the slopes and never fell. Here's another guy, lives Every year he heads to the slopes. He's going to go down the blue ones and the black ones. Now for all you ski cats, that means those tough ones, you know. And he, he doesn't go down them without falling. No, he does fall. Sometimes he actually tumbles down the black ones and the blue ones slopes. But who's the success? The guy who, slide, who skis down the baby slope or the guy with the great dream? One last thought, please. You're a success if you build a meaningful relationship with God. Now you can take all the others and you can put them outside, throw them out the window. Here's the kicker. I want you to notice what Nehemiah says in verse 20. He says, So I answered them and said to them, The God of heaven will give us success. Therefore, we, His servants, will arise and build. Now there are two things about this man's relationship with his God. With God. He considered himself a recipient of grace. He said, whatever God gives us, he, said, he, he understood that, that whatever he had in life was because God had given it if I don't have it, 
It's because God hadn't provided it. And if God doesn't will it, I don't need it. Because I've learned to live my life, he said, as a recipient of grace. It's the picture of a little child going with his hands out to his father saying, give me this bread today. It's the picture of a little one who lives in response to his father's provision. See, And this relationship he had with God was the relationship He considered himself a recipient of grace. So prayer and trust and faith were the inevitable results of his life. He lived in faith. He not only considered himself a recipient of grace, he committed himself to the responsibility of servanthood. And we, his servants, are you hearing me? He saw that life, really, if it's going to be successful, means that you serve the living God as a slave. It's amazing, when you read the Scripture, how much the characters of the Bible cherished being called a servant. They reveled in it. They lived in the joy of it. Paul says, paraphrase, now this is our greatest joy. We are slaves of Jesus Christ. And if you had to define or if you had to describe Moses' life or you had to put his epitaph on his tombstone, what would you say about Moses? This man who led his people out of bondage and established government as we know government now. What would you say about Moses? Well, you turn to the last part of the book of Deuteronomy and you'll find the epitaph that went on Moses' tomb. It's this. Moses, servant of God. Let me tell you something. The most successful people on planet earth are the slaves of the Lord Jesus. And I found from Nehemiah this truth. I can call myself successful if I have committed my life to servanthood. Let's pray together. Our Father, I pray that these words from your word will be applied to human action and human life. For Jesus' sake.